Florida's governor and presumptive Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis recently released what you could call a policy paper arguing that the war in Ukraine is not of vital interest of the United States. Naturally, this spurred a lot of debate both in D.C. and, of course, on Twitter. Now, whether you agree or disagree with his characterization, the bigger question here matters. What does this war mean for the United States? What is America's interest in this war, and what should policy around the war look like? The U.S. is not a combatant in the same way that Russia and Ukraine are, but it does have a role to play. My goal for this episode is to leave you, listener, with an a la carte menu of policy options and worldviews about what this war means for the United States. There's not a right answer here, but I hope it will give you something to think about, maybe talk about with friends and family. Joining us today is Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is a historian of U.S. foreign policy and an analyst of contemporary problems in American grand strategy. He's also the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. He talked about it a little bit in the episode, and I'm going to include a link to the book in the description. All that said, let's jump in. Stephen, welcome to the Bear Market Brief. Great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks. So let's start with a quick intro of yourself. Um, Tell us a little bit about your current research interests. What's keeping you busy these days? A lot of things. Uh, I'm a historian by training. So I did a PhD in history at Columbia. Uh, I got that degree in 2015, I think, though it might have been 2016. That's how long ago this was and how fuzzy a memory it is. Uh, maybe a traumatic experience. Since then, uh, I've gone on to do more work in the policy space and uh, public writing space. I, I write a lot on a range of topics in U.S. grand strategy. I should probably say I wrote my dissertation turned book, which is called Tomorrow the World, on how the United States made a decision to be the dominant political military power, which is a decision that I trace to about 18 months between the fall of France in the middle of 1940 and uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that's obviously had an influence in uh, shaping how I think about uh, uh, the U.S. role in the world. So, uh, you know, from there, I do a lot of different uh, analysis of, you know, concepts that inform U.S. foreign policy. uh, And I've uh, had a hand in uh, trying to promote a... uh, uh, agenda of military restraint as well as diplomatic engagement for the United States uh, going going forward based on what I think the United States should have done after the end of the Cold War. And also, I think all the more so now that uh, that we face a more contested world. I will include a link to that book in the episode description. I'm excited to read it myself. Um, you talk about concepts, um, concepts in foreign policy, how the U.S. can conceive of its interests. And that is the topic of today's episode, one that I think is particularly newsworthy. Um, so we have a fun exercise, certainly fun for me, hope fun for you too, and hope fun for you listeners. Um, we're going to frame this as though it's maybe the beginning or the first couple months of the Ukraine war. And we're brought in before President Biden, who doesn't know what's going on. He says, come on, Putin, this is this is malarkey. What's happening? And so what we're going to do is try to break down a couple of ways that we could conceive of U.S. interests in this conflict. Now, 
the first part of this episode is going to be essentially a, a literature review of sorts. We're going to just lay it out academically. It's not taking a side. It's what are the ways we could think about this? What are the policy implications? And then we can editorialize later in the episode. Um, so let's start with our first possible view on U.S. interests at play here. Um, maybe the most isolationist one, although I he- hesitate to use that word. But the you should that, hesitate to use that word. Because that you could still theoretically engage in this scenario. But the view here is that this war does not matter to the U.S. at all. Um, how would you argue that if, if that was your view on this? Yeah, so I, I think that um, I wouldn't want to say necessarily that this view would commit you to the idea that the view that the word doesn't matter at all or that you wouldn't have even potentially strong feelings about what you'd like to see happen in the war. But I think the essence of this uh, position would be that the United States has no uh, really strong interests in uh, the war in Ukraine. U.S. security and prosperity doesn't rise or fall on what happens in Ukraine and who controls the territory of Ukraine uh, or its external orientation. Um, it'd be very hard to, you know, honestly stand up and tell a fellow American, you know, you might need to uh, fight in this conflict or uh, spend, you know, billions of uh, collective taxpayer dollars uh, for something that fundamentally doesn't affect your lives uh, and, it, you know, isn't going to affect uh, your uh, prosperity either or your, or your opportunities. Um, why is this the case? You know, the United States doesn't have a, a strong economic relationship with Ukraine. Ukraine is geographically extremely distant uh, from, from the United States. Ukraine isn't in NATO. The United States has never made a commitment to defend Ukraine. Therefore, its credibility really isn't on the line. We have to make a distinction between NATO countries or treaty allies and uh, those countries that uh, we have not committed to. Otherwise, the United States is simply policing the world. Uh, and so I think you know this position would, would boil down to the United States shouldn't be the policeman of the world. I thought we learned that from the post 9-11 wars, and that's true even when we might sympathize strongly with, with one side in a, in a conflict. Uh, I think this case might also argue, and I should be clear, I'm just trying to present um, the, the position. I'm not uh, speaking for myself here, um, but or I'm not necessarily speaking for myself. We'll get to that part later, I assume. Uh, but, uh, you know, this position might also note that if the United States takes the lead uh, in providing support for Ukraine, uh, it may get in the way of Europe from stepping up, giving the Europeans little incentive to, uh, first of all, provide support for Ukraine in this conflict, but secondly, uh, build up their own defenses uh, to relieve burdens on the United States. So... I mean, there's a lot of different policy directions that you could take, even even in this scenario. What might policy look like if if we were um, viewing the world or viewing the conflict that way? Well, you know, one option would be to, um, you know, simply not uh, aid Ukraine to a significant degree, maybe take humanitarian measures 
uh, that you know don't involve military assistance. So it could be economic assistance. It could be uh, helping uh, with the resettlement of refugees. It could be maybe playing a coordinating role with the Europeans. It could be trying to offer uh, the uh, the offices, the diplomatic offices of the United States uh, to the parties in the conflict in the hopes of ending the conflict uh, more, more quickly. Um, it could also involve uh, being more able to um, separate the interests of Kiev from those of the United States than if the United States uh, started taking a strong interest in Ukraine's position in the war. I think one of the advantages of this position, the reason why I think it appeals to, to some people who hold it is, um, you know, it's the kind of the only guarantee of avoiding um, the, the truly unacceptable outcome for the United States, which would be getting dragged into a shooting war with Russia over Ukraine uh, or potentially escalation to the nuclear level. Uh, it would avoid an open-ended commitment because it's very hard if we're sitting in the first couple months of the war to have any sense of where the war is is going and what exactly uh, would uh, satisfy the United States and cause it to stop supporting Ukraine. So there's kind of an open-ended nature of a commitment that the United States would make. And then one can consider you know, the, the opportunity costs with respect to China or needs at home. Um, any risks and downsides? I wonder if in this world, the U.S. said we're not going to do anything. Does that mean it's open season for countries grabbing territory from other countries? Uh, I wouldn't say open season, but there's certainly a risk that um, under commitment by the United States could embolden Russia in particular, potentially also China, uh, to believe that uh, it could launch similar wars, aggressive wars uh, to conquer territory and not face repercussions from the United States, uh, at least in a military sense. Uh, I should have also mentioned that, you know, it's possible that sanctions could still be imposed on, on Russia, even in uh, a, even if one takes the view that U.S. interests are, are, are quite limited. So that could be some deterrent uh, for a state like Russia. But I think the, you know, the most um, uh, concrete risk would be that Russia could succeed in the war. Uh, it could overthrow Kiev. It could take large swaths of Ukraine's territory. Uh, and Eastern Europe uh, and Central Asia could be more threatened, at least in the short term, uh, by a Russia that has now shown that uh, it can successfully gobble up territory at least as long as as the United States doesn't have a, a formal uh, defense commitment. It's a scary situation. So let's let's take that to heart and think about another angle on this. So I would call this kind of the most moderate worldview. So this is the worldview that this actually does matter to the U.S. somewhat, but it's not maybe an existential you know threat. There's some limits here. Um, why in this worldview do we suddenly have an interest and what might constrain it? Kind of the same as above. What are the potential risks and advantages of viewing it this way? Um, why would you argue this is the case? For the middle position, I think the view would be that the United States has important interests, but not vital ones, implicated in the war in Ukraine. Um, one interest is 
that it would be better to keep Russian forces away from NATO countries, uh, as well as non-NATO countries like Moldova, uh, that Russia could threaten if it were able to consolidate control over Ukraine. Um, there are some, let's call them world order reasons. Uh, it would be good for international law to be upheld. And given that Russia is clearly uh, flagrantly violated international law, the UN charter tried to undermine the sovereignty of another country. It's a good thing um, that uh, if it were to pay a price and specifically to experience a strategic failure, which is a formulation that Biden officials uh, have have used uh, to describe the overall U.S. objective toward toward Russia in this war. That's distinct from uh, working to ensure that Russia experiences a complete defeat on the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, here, the point would be to ensure that when other countries look at Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, they draw the conclusion that that kind of crime doesn't pay. It's not something that they want to emulate, perhaps because NATO has been enlarged, which is contrary to what Putin said he, he wanted, perhaps because the Russian economy has suffered, uh, and perhaps because it, uh, in fact, did not achieve its goals very well and paid an extremely high price for uh, whatever kinds of, of gains it uh, was, would be able to achieve from, from the war. And then I think finally, it's you know not undesirable to have a militarily weakened Russia. Uh, so there's maybe a kind of um, opportunity perceived here to degrade the Russian military, um, and that in turn will keep the threat uh, that Russia poses uh, outside its borders uh, lower for some period of time. I also think you know that there are important humanitarian and, and justice considerations. That inform a lot of Americans uh, when they look at this this conflict and foreign policy eggheads tend to speak in terms of interest. But, um, uh, you know, I think this is an important part of the story. Uh, I think, you know, uh, Americans see that Ukraine has been victim to uh, an unprovoked invasion. Uh, they also see that Ukraine has proven that it's it's a cohesive country. It's fought for itself. It's fought heroically. And they want to support that for reasons that might uh, be disconnected from from U.S. interests. But as you said, this is also a, a moderate view. Um, so it concedes part of the argument from the, the previous view that we discussed. It concedes that the stakes aren't worth the extreme costs and risks of a war with, with Russia. And so it would seek to avoid any actions that uh, would pose a serious risk of the war escalating uh, to a direct NATO-Russia conflict, or probably to something that might uh, cause the Kremlin to employ nuclear weapons. But there is more risk in this scenario. This is a more muscular position, even if moderate in the kind of overall. Correct. And so, you know, one of the problems, since we're dealing with a middle ground position, like one of the questions is, which direction uh, does one shade to? How risk acceptant does one want to be to realize interests that are deemed important, but not vital? It's a good question. I 
think we'll we'll hash that out more when we get to the uh, editorialization to come. So hold your horses, listeners. We'll, we'll get there. Um, the last argument, the um, existential order defining the entire credibility of the United States as a country is at stake. I think this was echoed by folks early in the war arguing that we need to impose a no-fly zone to be really, really muscular. I think I just maybe suggested one of the reasons someone might argue that. But yeah, what what would uh, that worldview be based on? How, how would you go about arguing that's the case? I think you nailed it. I think this is... Uh, uh... This conflict uh, will define the future of the world uh, because international order depends on what happens in Ukraine. What is international order? Just for listeners who might not well, be familiar. Well, I'm still with trying that. to figure that out myself, but you know, it would have the view that um, uh, either U.S. leadership in the world or international laws, norms and institutions hold the world together and prevent it from spiraling into chaos and mass conquest. So, so you know, I think the domino theory is, is a relevant uh, uh, metaphor to invoke here. The idea would be that if Russia wins the war, or maybe even comes away with any territorial gains, um, then that has shown that international law or U.S. leadership uh, has failed and will embolden other countries uh, to take similar actions to Vladimir Putin's and will certainly embolden Putin himself. Um, now, this view might also be accompanied by a, an assessment of the Russian threat as being severe, uh, that Russia has intentions to push as far as it can territorially, and perhaps it could acquire the capability to succeed in rampaging across Europe if the United States steps back and the Europeans can't defend themselves. This view also in practice, I think would come often comes accompanied with an assessment that the escalation risks of direct US intervention or a total Ukrainian victory that to include reconquering Crimea are, are low. Vladimir Putin is bluffing when he threatens to use nuclear weapons, for example. This is not an existential war for Russia, even if it clearly means a lot to Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so there's not a really strong downside in backing Ukraine to the hilt. But there are ostensibly more risks here. Yes, you know, Russian territory has been hit during this war in Russia proper, and I don't even mean Crimea, I mean within Russia. Um, that happens when you start a war, but there is a risk here that this could lead to a shooting war. Yes. So I think people with this position, uh, who you listeners have probably figured out, it's not me, uh, would have to concede that, that yes, there are escalation risks, but they're worth it. Uh, because at the end of the day, the very basic order in the world depends on defeating Russia here. So you talked about, you know, where, where you stand here, and now we can raise the veil here. I think we did that fairly non-biasedly, so we can both pat ourselves on the back here. My best. The, the argument part, though. So without necessarily getting into our views directly yet, but which one 
do you think the Biden administration in reality right now, a, a year and a bit into the war, which view describes what the Biden administration has of, of this war? I think the Biden administration is clearly in the middle camp. Um, not surprising for policymakers. They, they tend to be in the middle camp of things. Um, the Biden administration has avoided uh, saying that uh, victory in Ukraine is a vital U.S. national interest. President Biden took the use of force off the table uh, even before the conflict began, but as the U.S. intelligence community uh, had come to the conclusion that the war was likely to occur. Um, so essentially, he has made very clear that uh, actions that would pose a high risk uh, of escalating the war to a direct U.S. or NATO conflict with Russia are actions he refuses to take. So that shows that he rejects the very strong version uh, of the argument that you know international order and U.S. security and prosperity depend on what happens in Ukraine. On the other hand, uh, obviously, the administration has been quite forward-leaning in uh, supporting Ukraine uh, through uh, weapons, billions of dollars uh, in the provision of uh, weapons and military assistance, uh, as well as economic support, rallying an international coalition, uh, sanctioning Russia to a degree that surprised many people, including myself. Uh, and, you know, I think there's a good question to be asked as well as we move from the, uh, the early stages of the war to where we are today about whether we're seeing mission creep in the war, um, exactly how clear the U.S. objectives are toward the war. Uh, have they gotten more expansive over time? Biden himself tends to employ maximalist rhetoric casting the fight as a, a, a key battle between autocracy and democracy. That's beginning to sound pretty existential to the United States. It's very important to the United States uh, that it remain a democracy and that the international conditions are in place for the United States to preserve its, its constitutional democracy. Um, so, you know, I think there are also divisions within the administration where some people lean more towards the U.S. interests are not that great in this conflict position, and others are leaning toward the, no, you know, Ukraine actually needs to win this conflict. Uh, and some of them, I think, have the view that because Vladimir Putin's nuclear threats have yet to materialize, that, uh, that the risk is lower than uh, might have been initially assumed. So not to wade into another debate about um, primary educational policy and letter grades and report cards, let's just say that letter grades are very reductive, but we need to evaluate how Biden has done. So what does he get points for, in your view, and fully editorializing here, and where does he lose them? What are the pluses and minuses? Well, so hard to give a letter grade. I'm currently teaching a, a course at Yale Law School. Um, where I'm not asked to give letter grades. So I'm going to use that as an excuse to evade your question, if I may. But you asked the right question in terms of where does he get points and where does he lose points? Um, you know, I, I would give him credit myself uh, for taking the use of force off the table. 
uh, and for doing things like, you know, very firmly rejecting a no-fly zone, which became a kind of media phenomenon early in in the conflict. I think he set basically the right priorities. Uh, avoid a direct war with Russia over Ukraine. That's not in U.S. interests. Uh, but uh, ensure, do what we can to ensure that Russia, uh, Russia's crime doesn't pay, that, that Russia experiences a strategic failure, uh, and aid Ukraine to take back the territory that it can take back uh, with a view toward uh, settling the war at the negotiating table. I think those are at the core of the administration's outlook, and those seem to me to be the right objectives. What's really difficult is how to apply those objectives to the concrete decisions that have to be made. Um, you know, that's really hard. And I'll be honest with you, um, I don't know exactly how I would apply those objectives to all the decisions that have been made over the past year plus. You know, had I been a decision maker looking at intelligence uh, and trying to make assessments in real time. It's, it's very difficult. Um, and the administration is struggling with this and I think, you know, continues to have to struggle with this. I, I think that some opportunities have been missed. Um, I, I think it would have been politically viable for the administration to uh, state early on in the conflict that uh, the United States would not provide material support uh, to a Ukrainian attempt to retake Crimea that it recognizes that uh, Ukraine has the right under international law to retake Crimea. Crimea is Ukraine's. Uh, but that that's not what this war is about for the United States. And the escalation risks of doing so uh, could be severe. Uh, I think that would have been viable politically to say. Today, it's much more difficult uh, for the administration to, to make that case. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the administration's internal view is. Uh, on this on this issue. And so that's, I think, a really significant concern for people like me who, who, uh, you know, are, are mostly in that second camp, but I'm shading a little bit more toward the limited US interest side than than I am toward the let's go to the mat um, in, in this particular instance. You mentioned the risk of, of mission creep here. What does that mean? Practically? It means that U.S. objectives uh, may be expanding over time. Um, there, there, I think, could be a, a conceptual and rhetorical dimension of this in which the announced goals of the United States have arguably expanded, and that means that they could expand further in a way that perhaps... Uh, untethers the administration from its own initial calculation of the interests and the costs and the risks at stake here. Uh, there's also a material dimension. Uh, the West has supplied Ukraine with, you know, increasingly um, sophisticated weaponry. Um, one can certainly criticize maybe it's been too slow to, to, to do that. Um, but uh, on the other hand, there's a kind of drip, drip, drip in which once the, the, the next platform is given, then uh, the question immediately becomes in, in policy debate and the media discussion, well, what about the, the next thing, the F-16s? 
and then political pressure accrues of the administration to uh, to accommodate Ukraine's request. So I, I think there's a you know legitimate debate to be had as to whether we're seeing mission creep here. Um, I still think the, that the administration is trying to stick to the initial goals that that I described. Um, but just on the rhetorical level, um, you know, President Biden himself and other administration officials speak less these days than they did early in the conflict about the goal of strengthening Ukraine's hand on the battlefield in order to strengthen its hand in a peace negotiation. The peace negotiation part has uh, diminished over time in terms of its salience. Uh, Biden routinely talks about supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's a formulation that I think uh, started to be used around last autumn. Uh, reader, uh, listeners should, should check me on that. But uh, I didn't notice it as much in the beginning of that conflict. It also speaks to the fact that, you know, it remains unclear exactly um, what kind of outcome the United States uh, would support uh, in order to support a, a ceasefire or a, a peace settlement. Um, we're in something of a bind because obviously we don't want Russia to, uh, to make any progress in the war. Uh, on the other hand, Ukraine could make so much progress uh, that it actually poses major escalation risks, and that could be a catastrophe for Ukraine, for Europe, and for the United States. That's where I think the the Crimea piece comes in. And you know, the administration has stood back a little bit, um, let Kiev uh, be, or at least appear to be, the main arbiter of its war aims. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully that uh, Kiev will make good decisions and Washington will uh, will be effective in uh, shaping those decisions for the better, but it's a gamble. So we have time for a final question here, and I'm excited to, uh, to get to this question because I think it's an interesting one. Um, there's a lot of interpretations of, of Russian war aims. This is about NATO. No, this is about Ukraine. No, this is about Russia's former imperial holdings, Putin citing you know, Peter the Great, among other people. But from America's angle, yes, this is about Ukraine. But I think there's an argument to be made that it's also about Europe and European security and the place America has in Europe's security architecture, which matters to Russia too, I think is safe to say, not a very spicy points to make. In your view, what is America's actual interest in Europe now that we're at least, what, 75 years about after World War II? What does our ideal Europe look like if, if you get your way? Well, since 1940 or 41, according to my book, at least, the United States has identified a vital interest in preventing uh, a any country from conquering Europe, especially if that's a totalitarian country. It would shut the United States out of important marketplaces uh, and, uh, you know, pose a long-term danger of a powerful rival perhaps encroaching upon the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I think that's the kind of fundamental uh, uh, reason why the United States uh, mobilized to to wage World War II, even prior to World, Pearl Harbor, and also wage the the Cold War. 
Um, the situation has changed, even if the United States continues to have a vital interest in uh, keeping you know, most of Europe basically stable, uh, peaceful, and uh, liberal, that is able to do business with the United States. Um, it's doubtful that Russia has the capability to do what the Soviet Union could have done, uh, which is, in fact, you know, conquer all of Germany, conquer north, conquer west of that. Um, Russia really doesn't have that capability today, or, or so it would seem. And so here's where I think um, I would fault the Biden administration the most. It's not over its handling of the war in Ukraine. Um, I think I'm going to need a lot more analysis and time, maybe 20 years, maybe more to, to really be able to assess, you know, how did decisions look at the time? Uh, and do I think that was the right judgment or, or not? But from what I see, I'm, you know, favorable. So if you want a grade, it's a good grade, right? Maybe it's a B, uh, maybe it's a B plus. These days with great inflation, I don't even know what that means anyway. <laughs> yeah. But where I'm more critical is that, you know, I think it's outdated for the United States to uh, put itself in the position of being the security guarantor of essentially all the countries in, in, in Europe, especially given Russia's very limited capabilities in the military realm, which have frankly only been reinforced by its it's uh, surprisingly poor performance in in Ukraine. Um, I don't see a capability for Russia to overrun much of Europe, even if Vladimir Putin had that intention. So I can assume the worst of Vladimir Putin's intention. It's a pretty safe assumption. Um, but you know, for the United States to be risking uh, you know nuclear war in the defense of the Baltics, for example. You know, I have a hard time saying that that's intrinsically in the interest of the United States. And frankly, I think most U.S. officials during the Cold War would have would have had the same assessment. So I think what's happened is that the United States, because it thought that uh, it would get along with Russia and it wouldn't actually have to make good on its defense commitments, decided to expand NATO, champion the expansion of NATO. Uh, and entrench itself as the leading European security provider over the last three decades. But now we need a course correction. Um, you know, it's not just because the United States has a more serious uh, competitor in in Asia, namely China, uh, to contend with and many needs at home, but also because the risks it's running in Europe are actually out of step with with what's of intrinsic importance. Uh, to to the United States, so I I think uh, the Biden administration actually has an opportunity with this war to shape Europe's uh, geopolitical awakening. Uh, to say, look, the United States will support Ukraine. We're essential right now uh, to sustaining the Ukrainian war effort, and so we'll meet that responsibility. Uh, but to be perfectly honest, you cannot count on us. Uh, to, you know, potentially trade Boston uh, for Tallinn. Uh, and you should stop making that gamble. And so instead of sending reinforcements to, to Europe, the Biden administration should be, frankly, I think it's not even really a threat at this point. It's just an admission of reality uh, that 
you know, one cannot count on the American president or polity in five or 10 years uh, to come to the defense of every inch of NATO, as, as Biden has, has, uh, has said the U.S. is committed to do, and that Europe, thankfully, uh, has uh, the economic means uh, to defend itself and balance against Russia. Uh, it, it ought to be able to do that very effectively. Uh, the numbers are really overwhelming. Even before the conflict in Ukraine, uh, the European members of NATO spent more on defense than than Russia did. Um, now, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, to be sure, uh, to, in um, making Europe uh, truly able to defend itself with only a supporting role or potentially not much support from the United States. I think there should be a transitional process. Um, you know, the end of a second Biden term might be an important goal to, to set down. But needless to say, what I've described has not been the direction that the Biden administration has has taken, nor one that Europeans themselves um, have have insisted on. And I think that's a real gamble with the future of of European security. Lost to digest there. Hopefully for listeners, you're thinking about which of these camps and worldviews you're in um, and can talk to people about it. I mean, this is important for Americans to decide. Stephen, thank you for coming by today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Stephen and to you, listener, for joining. So which worldview and policy track do you agree with? You can find me on Twitter at the handle at Aaron underscore Schwa and let me know. Or if you're listening on the FPRI website, You can find my first name and last name and email me at firstname.lastname at gmail.com. I'd be really excited to hear from you about this. The Bear Market Brief podcast is part of the BMB Russia and Eurasia newsletter, which you can follow and sign up for on Twitter at the handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia Eurasia is brought to you by the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information about this initiative and many others, stop by fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.